0: Hi, I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today, we are beginning our series of episodes on the Indiana Jones trilogy. Da, 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 <laughs> da.
1: <laughs>
0: Today, we're diving into Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, directed by Steven Spielberg, screenplay by Lawrence Kasdan. I'm here with the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Rand,
2: Hello, everyone.
0: Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Cayeros. Hi. So we are super excited to finally be here. Just thank you to the patrons (laughs) immediately for helping us cross this goal. You guys are awesome. You belong in a museum. You belong (laughs) in a museum. And we mean that from the bottom of our hearts. (laughs) Whatever it means to you. (laughs) Doesn't sound good. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, thank you guys. It's been really fun. Leading up to this, the Discord has been super active and crazy. So once again, if you want to support us on Patreon, you're also getting tons of Patreon-exclusive episodes on Mad Max Fury Road and Spider-Man and the Spider-Verse and The Rise of Skywalker and Mulan and like 25 other things. We have video podcasts. We do a monthly film club. So all of that plus access to the Discord, which is a really fun place. And all of our listeners are so fascinating.
2: And so smart and insightful and cool.
0: And really good at keeping me up to date on what's happening in the industry. Like, yes. the Discord is my news go-to now. Mm.
2: For sure.
0: Yeah. But so yes, thank you to all the patrons for helping us cross this goal. And we are here now. So let's start talking about Indiana Jones. So it was really fascinating watching Raiders of the Lost Ark again. Because I honestly can't remember when I last saw it. I don't think it was a crazy long time ago. But obviously, as a kid, I watched these movies all the time. Mm -hmm. But it was that kind of thing, like we talked about in Star Wars, where Child Michael pretty much just wanted to watch Return of the Jedi. Like Child Michael wanted to watch the spaceship battles and all that stuff. And Child Michael also wanted to watch The Last Crusade, primarily. Okay. It was like, I want to watch the beginning of Raiders, and then like kind of the car chase, and then maybe <laughs> the ending, and then kind of fast forward through all the parts in the middle, and fast forward through a lot of Temple Doom, and then just get Last Crusade. So for some reason, that was the one that like wow. really made me excited. So going back to Raiders, it feels like there's still a lot of discovery, and there were things that mm. happened When watching, that I'd completely forgotten, and different beats, and just the way the story sort of unfolds. So it was a really interesting seeing it through modern eyes and appreciating things way more than I ever had before, but also finding the tone really interesting and different Mm -hmm. than I remembered. And just so a lot of things had changed and were different than how I remembered them. A lot of them were even better. And for sure, I ended feeling like, regardless, there's nothing else like Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like, this movie is yes. just a one-of-a-kind movie. So, yeah, so I really enjoyed diving back in again. Trisha, I know you like these movies a little bit. When was the last time you, you watched this before this one?
2: I was going to say, they're all right. <laughs> when was the last time I watched Raiders before this time? yeah. Couple months ago. I don't know. Right. Like, yep. yeah, I watched this movie. I-, I watched all of these movies. Well, actually, that's not true. I watched this one in Last Crusade <laughs> a <laughs> lot. <laughs> a lot, a lot. The Stay other tuned. two, not so much, but I'll get to that eventually. I'm a massive Spielberg fan and always have been. I feel like my relationship with Steven Spielberg and his entire filmography is just my relationship with movies. You know, Jurassic Park is my favorite movie, basically. Or it's the one I always say whenever someone puts that asinine question to you. Or
1: you're just <laughs> uh-huh. like, mm-hmm. like, that's
2: a real question anyone could ever answer.
1: Right. <laughs>
2: but if I must, Jurassic Park. My relationship with film is such that, I think for probably for a lot of those in our generation, Spielberg's big, perfect blockbusters are the ones that we like, made us excited about going to movies and seeing film for the first time and, you know, inspired a lot of us to want to make movies as well. Mm -hmm. The thing about Spielberg is he's kind of the, because of his school of filmmakers, you know, sort of the new Hollywood, and he's among the youngest when we talk about that generation of, like, Coppola and Lucas and those guys. Spielberg was, you know, pretty much the youngest in that school, but coming out of that, he was the probably biggest as well in terms of director as superstar.
3: Mm, Right.
2: Where suddenly the average moviegoer knew the name of the director. You know, that was not always the case in film history. Uh, And so, you know, going back to the golden era of Hollywood, no one knew who the directors were really, because it was like the studios were kind of a factory, you know, and then you get into this new Hollywood and,
3: You've got like Hitchcock in there and people like yes, that, where who?
2: Yeah, exactly. There's Barry
3: there are Bringer, some directors yeah. that
2: stand out from the pack, but Spielberg really made a name for himself. Mm-hmm. I was going to say a splash very early on, <laughs> and it was you know his youth was also part of that mystique too, where he was this like boy wonder, and yep. you know he was making movies so young and he's just breaking blocks or sorry busting them anyway and that was like the household name (laughs) aspect of it is how a lot of us realized oh people do make movies these movies don't come out of nowhere people make them and they are people named steven spielberg and that is (laughs) what i want to do and if i want to be a filmmaker i want to be steven spielberg because he's the one who makes movies and he made et and he made this and he made you know all of these other ones and so i think that's where I got fascinated and then, you know, just growing up, it was like idolized these movies as being just the greatest. I mean, they're historical action adventure movies. <laughs> that is what I currently write or, right. or like dream to write. And no one makes them anymore, unfortunately, because no one wants another Pirates of the Caribbean, although Jungle Cruise, maybe, but I don't know. That's, <laughs> it checks on my personal boxes. It just goes way back to childhood. Right. It's the deepest rooted thing in me. And that's all of there is to it. It's, So close to my
0: heart. Sounds like it formed the boxes and then immediately checked them.
3: Right.
2: Yes. That's a very, yes. It's exactly that. (laughs) It's a treasure map. X marks the spot right here on my
3: heart. Right. That is one of those weird things I always ask myself, like, did I love this movie because I love that stuff? Or do I love that stuff because I love that movie? Like, do I love foresty outdoor stuff because I watched Prince of Thieves and Return of the Jedi or did I love those movies because I already liked that stuff? Like, I don't know, but that's how childhood works.
1: Great
3: <laughs> Yeah. Right. Cool. Well,
0: and Brian, speaking of childhood... When did you see these movies? What's your relationship with them?
3: Yeah, so I think I talked about this a little in our Star Wars, the original trilogy podcast. But the two VHSs I had from these two franchises as a kid were Return of the Jedi and Temple of Doom. So <laughs> I wow. like I can't objectively even talk about those movies because it's like, no, those are the movies I grew up with. Those are the movies I watched right over and over, especially Temple of Doom. I watched over and over and over as a kid. I haven't seen it in a couple of years, and I still rewatching it for for next week. Could just quote like inflections, like I know what you no know, Character's going to repeat this word after they say it, like all like those dumb little things you notice as a kid, and then the things I didn't notice because they're at the edges of the screen. <laughs> right, <laughs>
0: right. We weren't allowed to watch widescreen back in the day.
3: <laughs> but yeah, so I loved, loved, loved Temple of Doom. I definitely saw the other two movies as a kid, but it would have been like they were on. TV or I rented them from the video store for like a weekend or something like that. So I definitely saw them, but I didn't know them that well. And then I remember when I was eight going to Walt Disney World down in Florida and doing the whole, not the ride, the show where it's like you sit in the audience and there's a performer and you know all the stuff is happening. And then there's a ride as well. And yeah, just definitely it was like this franchise, this character has been with me for as long as I can remember. But like you said, Michael, Raiders is maybe the one of the three I've seen the least. So it's still, even though I've seen it at least a dozen times, if not more, it still feels like something where I'm still sort of appreciating it as an adult and still sort of discovering mm-hmm. new things. So yeah, I'm looking forward to getting into it. But that's sort of my way in was Temple of Doom.
0: Yeah. Nice. You're talking about like, you know, watching it and being able to quote all the things and all that stuff. My experience watching Raiders was, wait, that sound effect was definitely used in Star Wars. Or like, yeah. oh, yeah. they oh, used yeah. that later. And like, so hearing sound effects <laughs> and like past, like fleeting moments and like neurons in my brain dedicated to every sound in Star Wars somehow like <laughs> being like, I was waiting for this day. I can recognize that sound. It's John, also John just,
4: William riffs that are yeah. exactly mm, right.
3: like other yeah. riffs. Yeah. Right. I was gonna
2: yeah. say Ben Burt is here ben for Burt. you. Ben Burt. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
3: <laughs> and just uh, spot the Wilhelm scream because right. they're they're all it's out. Fun. They're all throughout these whole movies. Yeah.
1: yeah.
4: Awesome. Cool. And Alex, what about you? I was just thinking while Brian was talking, you almost like could attach a personality test to like what child is formed from which Indiana Jones they are (laughs) most exposed Mm. to. Like maybe the difference between, you know, Michael, Alex, and Brian is whatever Indiana Jones movie like we were obsessed with. Is that Mm. why I became
3: like a goth kid? Was because that's what that's (laughs) what I'm
4: thinking. Yeah. And we're like, we like we, you know, we were watching the, like the more wholesome, you know, father son story, right? Um, and Gen Z is just screwed because of Crystal Skull. Oh yeah. man, <laughs> what a
2: tough time!
4: <laughs> All that is to say that basically my experience was like identical to Michael's, where I essentially Last Crusade was my Indiana Jones movie, and the other ones were just kind of there for parts of the movies. Temple of Doom, I definitely watched the least and was most terrified of, and most horrified. That, like, it was rated PG on the VHS tape box, but then, like, people's hearts were being pulled out. I think it's Mm. PG 13, because I think it's famously the
0: first PG 13 movie.
2: It's actually, yeah, the PG 13 rating was created because of Temple of Doom. And I believe. I have to look back at this, but I believe it was like originally released as a PG, but it was like kids Mm -hmm. were so scared that they then created PG-13 immediately. And now it is PG-13. And now it is like the first PG-13. You can say it. it that way.
4: Okay, well, basically, I was one of those kids that was so scared they had to invent (laughs) a new rating system, and so I was not a fan of Temple of Doom as a kid. So I've barely ever watched it. I maybe have seen it all the way through like once or twice. So I am really curious to revisit it (laughs) as an adult. But you know, I mean, Indiana Jones is is like Star Wars or like any of those other movies from that childhood time where I've just always i've I've always seen them. I've I've always known them. I don't know when I even first watched them or how. Every hat that was kind of like a cowboy hat was an Indiana Jones hat, you know, your childhood. <laughs> like they're just they're just like things that it's like no, the universe includes Indiana Jones, and so that is an Indiana Jones thing, you know, out in the world even. It's hard to even distinguish, yeah, my viewing experience with these films because they're just kind of a part of what reality is. But it, like Michael, I it was really fascinating to revisit Raiders and watch it as an adult and like understand what they're saying in these exposition scenes and like oh there's like a story happening between the action parts and so that was really it was really interesting to watch it as a real movie and not just an assemblage of sequences that my kid brain wanted to experience so yeah let's talk about it
0: another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24 7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, so this movie is like the most movie that's ever moved. Like, <laughs> I guess, like,
2: <laughs> I thought that was Titanic.
4: Well, it's
0: like, it's Titanic, it's Jurassic Park, and it's this.
4: I mean, because Spielberg, like, I feel like he just created yes. this thing that is such a thing.
0: <laughs> yeah, and just like the way the movie opens, it's just like such a, like, you guys are watching a movie. Like, yeah. put your seatbelts on, we're going to have some fun. There's like the, the like kind of silly Paramount logo becomes the mountain, but like it's kind great. of fun. I yeah. love it. Yeah, it's fun, and then like the reveal of Indiana Jones—he steps out of the shadow, and the like. There's just Mm -hmm. there's so much, like you could tell Spielberg was having so much fun with all of the everything in this movie. (laughs) Yes.
3: Yeah, I mean that reveal is is fascinating because I always think about that when I think about this movie because obviously, like Harrison Ford was somewhat known at this point from Star Wars and American Graffiti a little bit, but for the most part it's, here's a brand new character. Nowadays, it's like every, you know, Batman and MCU character and whatever, but here's a brand new character you've never heard of before, potentially an actor you've never seen before, but we are going to tell you that this is your hero. We're not going to show you his face. We're going to kind of put this mystique around him, and then he reveals himself from the shadows, and then later he, like, is the shadow on Marion's wall. It was such an interesting way to sort of, like, force your brain to accept that this is now your new superhero who you never like this didn't exist in any comic book movie show anything like that before brand new but like in the first 10 minutes we're like there you go now this person has like an energy and a magic around them that wasn't there before
2: well it's a genius way to open a movie like this because ultimately you have to establish the character first and as everyone knows this movie is a breakneck-paced action-adventure movie where there's so many action sequences in it and everything is like an action-adventure sequence in it, basically, that you have to open it with an action-adventure sequence right out of the gate to really give us the gist of who the character is. And I love that pretty much the opening sequence gives us Belloc, but it gives us almost nothing else. Mm -hmm. Like, it doesn't really have anything to do with the arc it has nothing to do with Marion. It doesn't tell us right. Indy's a professor. It doesn't really tell us most of the stuff we're going to end up needing to know to get into this movie except it tells us everything about who Indiana Jones yeah. is and what kind of movie this is. Yes. Which is the other critical thing you need to know, which is this is going to be so splashy and dramatic mm. and so fast and like, you know, I was reading a ton of reviews from 1981 when this movie came out Mm -hmm. and Pauline Kael's review is famous. If you haven't read it, go check it out. And it's, the title of it is whipped. She was very famously, (laughs) Pauline Kael very famously panned this movie, Mm. but her review is really interesting because her criticisms of it, I think are not totally crazy. Basically the gist of her review is Spielberg can do better And this is like serial trash
3: um, Mm -hmm. that
2: he decided to make, which is like exactly what he wanted to make. But I think she was hoping for like a very sophisticated thing. And that's not what this is. But here's what she said about the opening sequence. And I'll read some parts and paraphrase others. But she said, the hero Indiana Jones, the Daredevil archaeologist, makes the kind of bright-eyed entrance that's so intensely dramatic, it's funny. Spielberg, a master showman, can stage a movie cliche so that it has Fred Astaire's choreographic snap to it. He transcends the cliches by sensational whiplash editing. But Spielberg's technique may be too much for the genre. The opening sequence, and then she goes on to describe what it is. Hmm. It's an encyclopedia of high spots from the old serials, run through at top speed, and edited like a great trailer for Flash. It's like a hit number in a musical, which is so terrific that you actually don't want the show to go on. You just want to see that number again.
0: Interesting.
2: Which I think is super fair. That's like a very apt way to describe the opening sequence.
4: When I think about like what Raiders was like in my kid brain compared to like Last Crusade, I think my kid brain liked all the things in that opening sequence. It was puzzle things on the ground. You can't step here. You're going to release the arrows. You got to get the treasure by putting on the sandbag. And I think Last Crusade has a lot more of these kind of like magical temple puzzles Mm -hmm. going on. (laughs) And this movie like sets up kind of like what became like a video game genre, basically in Mm -hmm. this opening sequence. And then doesn't really have much of it the rest of the movie. The rest of the movie is not really about going into complex you know mechanized temples with like puzzles to solve as much as just we got to dig or we now we got to like you know break this wall and get out through this way
2: well the map room stuff is like a puzzle to solve sure
4: yeah kind of but it's also not the kind of puzzle where like if you step on the wrong right. crack you're going to fall to your doom sure and so yeah it's it's interesting thinking about how that opening sequence does feel like the biggest best Indiana Jones musical number right up front and it's never really done again like the rest of the movie is kind of different
2: until the end of the last crusade
4: right mm. exactly hmm. yeah it's interesting hearing that review cuz it
0: to me this this opening doesn't feel quick like it doesn't feel slow but it feels And maybe this is just like a sign of the times and how much faster things got. But yeah, to me, this feels like, yeah, no, this is like a good pace. I'm I'm liking it. And there is this kind of, you know, like pancaking meta collapsing thing happening where it's like, try to explain those words. Uh, But like, so Raiders for us now is kind of like an old movie, right? It's older than us at this point. And I guess at all points, that's how time works. But So it's this old movie. So it feels kind of like a classic, but it's doing references and throwbacks to like Mm -hmm. classics of another era. So there's like multiple jumps happening of like references. So I could totally see. Someone in 1981 feeling like the reveal of Indiana Jones is like, oh, this is you know serial trash or whatever. But to me, watching at this time, I'm like, oh, he's really capturing like the fun of the like guy betrays him and pulls his gun out, and then Indiana Jones is so fast that he can whip faster than the guy can pull the trigger, and he whips the gun out, and then he walks out. Like I feel like that's yeah, it's just it's interesting how the contextual. Place that you're coming from
4: reframes that's not trash anymore. That's a cool, classic throwback reference thing, which is art. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think that the thing that we've talked about a few times, we talked about it in Stranger Things, is what is the right way to homage something? You know, so you have the, I think there's like an eighty twenty to a lot of these things, like Stranger Things, where it's like 80%, we are making a modern show that feels like it was shot last week, that's going to, you know, have whatever. But 20%, we are going to make sure the score has like this 80s feel to it. We are going to, obviously dress the entire show to make it feel like you are in the 80s. But in terms of the the meta, the production and all that kind of stuff, we are at least 80% living in modern world. And then you have the opposite in like the Tarantino approach with like grindhouse or Django and Chain, which is like, we're gonna sort of focus on making this feel like the old thing, but we're going to do all this new stuff in it. So then it sort of has this weird disconnect where it feels like it's trying to be this classic thing, but then like the subject matter and the blood and, you know, whatever <laughs> else is is, right. is like very modern. And I think that Raiders is a good example of, you know, they were trying to be these old serials, but they could have done it in black and white. They could have made it, four 30-minute episodes about this character, and that is the movie. There could have been like a campy voiceover. There could have been so much they did to actually try to make this be an old serial, but they didn't. And Spielberg is very clear. He said, look, this isn't a spoof. Like something like The Mummy... Feels like it's sort of somewhere right. in between a spoof and its own thing mm. uh, or scream. Like those things mm. that feel like we're spoofing it, but we're also trying to be the thing. This is like, feels more serious. It feels more like it is just doing the thing it's doing. But, and then you get the homage stuff, the map, right? Like anytime they're flying somewhere, yeah, you yeah. see the line on right. the map and stuff. But that's such a nice, subtle thing. So then you get those things like the whip and the reveal of, of the main character and stuff like that, which feels like those are the homage things that I think aren't going too far over the line. Maybe they could bump for somebody who is like just really turned off by that. But I think for the most part, the movie is trying to be a serious modern 1981 movie while at the same time feeling like it is sort of being an homage to the thing that that inspired it in the first place.
2: Well, we talked about this a little bit with Knives Out, which is mm. that genre is something ultimately best when it's embraced but simultaneously refreshed. Right. And so, you know, the cool thing that we talked about with Knives Out is that it takes two genres that are similar, right? It takes a whodunit and a crime movie, a crime story, and blends them together in a way that looks like a straight whodunit and hits all of the things that you love about a whodunit, but still feels unexpected and surprising, and you kind of can't guess what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. I feel like Indiana Jones, it doesn't do the thing where it blends genres, but it does sort of have like a refresh to it in some ways. And it hits all of the things that you love about the serial, right? And so like, I think at the time when people were noting that like, oh, this is borrowing from this and this and it's all of these influences, it felt really big and bombastic and almost like too much of a spoof. But at the same time, it does take itself pretty seriously in other ways, as you're pointing out, Brian. And so it does feel kind of fresh and new, while at the same time being chock full of all the action-adventure things. I talked about, I don't know, it might've been on the Discord, actually, now that I think about it, but when I was writing a Western a couple of years ago, I wrote like a straight-ahead action-adventure Western. And when I sat down to write it, I made a list of Western things. And it was just like saloons, gunfights, horses, like just the most basic things. And I don't know, there were probably 50 things on the list. And then I just challenged myself to put every single one of them in there if I could. But sometimes I had to be really creative with how I jammed them in. And I say jammed, make them feel organic to the story. (laughs) Get them in there, right? And I think that that's what this movie does really well. It hits all of the high points of, this is what you want from an action-adventure serial. And at the same time, it feels cleverly done. It feels like the things arise organically out of the story, out of the character, and out of the you know incredible action sequences that have, they managed to... I guess they really wrote the movie around, right, these action-adventures, these in sequences.
4: Yeah, basically, Spielberg and Lucas had a vision for these set pieces. And they were like, Lawrence Kasdan, can you just write a story... That makes it makes right. sense that indie is here now and then here now. So a, a lot of the movie was is kind of like the you know Mission Impossible uh, Christopher McQuarrie movies where he kind of took the same approach of you know Tom Cruise is going to hang off the side of a plane. You know how do we get him there? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And just let's figure out a story. But yeah, it, just really quickly on on the topic of why they feel more than just the throwback serial kind of goofiness to me is also just the scope and the epic, you know, canvas of Raiders in particular. I mean, like, once we're at sea and there's, like, a submarine, yeah. like, like, this movie is huge. I forgot mm. how big this movie is and how globe trotting and how epic. And, and it transcends the more kind of, like, the cheap TV adventure serial. It's doing the Lawrence of Arabia kind of shots. Very good point. Going to that cinema.
2: Exactly. Realm.
4: Well, and so it's interesting. So there's these tapes
0: that were recorded of George Lucas and Lawrence Kasdan and Steven Spielberg. And I think Spielberg even said it was like the weekend Star Wars came out, like they were all in Hawaii because they were like trying to- Well, I think Lucas those, avoid. Are, those
4: are two different like hangouts. I think the, the Hawaii hangout was just the, the idea for it. And then this okay. was like, now we're getting serious and we're actually writing it. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Okay.
2: The tapes I think you're talking about are from January 1978 when they were mm-hmm. back in LA. Right. And they were right. developing the story because Lawrence Kasdan wasn't there in Hawaii. Right. That makes sense. This is all according to like legend. Legend. Yeah. Right, but right. amazingly, most of their stories do match. So right. maybe most of it's true.
4: I've seen video interviews yeah. of both Lucas and Spielberg recounting the same story. So. Again, right. they got
2: their story straight. It's a yeah. cute legend. Yeah. Sandcastle. Yeah.
0: And so, yeah, so there are these transcripts of these tapes. I foolishly was like, I think I'll like read all of them before we record today. They are super long because they recorded <laughs> it, it like, days yeah. and days and stuff. So I only got to read a little bit, and it was them talking about basically the first two scenes of the movie. But what was striking to me was that besides just, you know, it's just really fun to see them throwing ideas around, and Spielberg is like, okay, what about this? What if there's a boulder? What if there's an incline? And so then on the way out, there's a boulder that like you can... Like, like read and hear him coming up with like the iconic moment. But they were also talking a lot about Indiana Jones as a character. And especially like George Lucas, like had this like really intense vision for like this weird mishmash character where he's like, he's an archaeologist, mm-hmm. but he's like kind of cynical and jaded because he's basically like a bounty hunter but a for treasurer.
2: Yeah.
4: Right. Yeah. Wasn't he also kind of like like you Going to bars and a womanizer and yeah, like, he was a womanizer. He was definitely alcoholic, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was
0: more like toward like a James Bond ish person, but was also always still like a professor, like a doctor, like he has this PhD, but he's also this person. Too but he'd many never things. be in a classroom, <laughs> and so obviously, like it all changed and evolved and became what it is. But I appreciated how much time they spent just talking about the character mm-hmm. because Indiana Jones is this special, unique character that is an amalgam of kind of interesting, semi-contradictory things, but that's like the special blend that came out of it is like, is this series, right? Like there's a lot of great things about the series and like good characters around him and just the screenwriting in general is amazing, but there is just something unique about the character of Indiana Jones And it's really fascinating to see them putting the time and care into how do we design this person? How do we nail how he feels and how he comes across to the audience so that they
4: really get what's like unique about this person? I think it's a hugely important part of his likability as a character that he's not a bounty hunter. You know, he's not a gun for hire or a grave robber for hire who's in it for the money. Because, you know, those characters are hard. They can win you over maybe, but you're not on their side really from the very beginning of a movie, but he's like genuinely excited about history and like genuinely wants to preserve really amazing rare artifacts. And that that is like his primary motivation while also being this guy who's down to kind of, you know, get down and dirty when he has to, to, to fulfill his mission. Um,
0: Nerd gunslinger.
4: (laughs) Yeah. That's a great combination. It's something as a kid you can almost relate to more that he is ultimately kind of goofy and he's not they, they talked about also not making him like a superhero bond person like he right. messes up pretty frequently or has kind of accidental victories in his fights yep. he's not like this amazing mastermind perfection warrior he's kind of bumbling in a lot of ways mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: yeah it's it's an interesting sort of take on good versus evil which is something like star wars you know it's sort of here's the good people here's the evil people like, the end. But this is like someone who forget about their morality or anything that much. It's more just, here's someone who wants to preserve history and important things like you were saying, Alex, versus someone who just wants the money that they will get by selling this thing. So it's like, it's an easy way to sort of put a good and an evil side on things just by being like, he actually cares about history. Like like you were saying, he he's concerned about this. That's his main motivation versus Han Solo, for instance, who is like, oh, how much money will I get by saving this human's life? Okay, then I'll do it.
4: And I'll add to that really quickly, just part of the complexity of his desire is also, I think, he he just has personal curiosity. Like, Of course. In Raiders, when he doesn't blow up the arc to kind of end it all, it's because he wants to see what's inside. You know, mm-hmm. he's curious. It's, it's beyond more like of a cultural preservation thing sometimes. It's also like he's just really into this stuff and like wants it for himself in a way before handing it over to the museum.
2: Yeah. I think one of the trademarks of Spielberg's films, once he became like a mega, you know, famous director and a very bankable director is a little bit of a conversation about art and entertainment versus commerce. You know, you get this in Jurassic Park, like a lot mm-hmm. where, Now you You want to sell
4: it. Now you want to sell it.
2: Exactly. (laughs) Like here you have this amazing, like wondrous, you know, entertaining dinosaur, but it's also extremely lucrative to have. And Mm so, you know, Spielberg in his films, even though, you know, he doesn't write his movies, this is, I feel like something I see a decent amount where there's a character who's in it for a pure reason. And then there's a character who's Mm -hmm. in it for money. Mm -hmm. And you see this dichotomy. And so you have Belloc here who is kind of, you know, he's the main antagonist essentially because he is kind of a, that mirror of Indiana Jones where he even says to mm-hmm. Indiana Jones, he has like the
4: speech about being a dark mirror.
2: Exactly. He's like, <laughs> it would only take a nudge to make you like me. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so interesting when you see this from Spielberg, because Spielberg has said that Raiders in particular is a movie about movies. Like it's a movie Mm. about entertainment. And you get the sense that George Lucas and Steven Spielberg got into the movie business because they loved movies and entertainment. And then as it turned out, they happened to arrive in the movie industry at the exact right moment to also become hugely famous and incredibly wealthy. And I don't know, I almost feel like they feel guilty about it in some ways, or they're kind of obsessed with, What does that mean that like I got into this to like make basically I got into this to make entertainment for the masses because or just that has wide appeal and to children as well. Like I think Raiders is aimed at adults ultimately, but it's the movie that like Spielberg and Lucas have both said I made a movie I wanted to see when I was like, you know, 15 years old. And so I feel like there's this conversation about yeah, what is a pure motivation to do something And then what is like a polluted motivation that's driven by money or commerce? And so ultimately the choice that Indy makes near the end of this film to not blow up the Ark, right? Where Belloc puts it to him. He's like, you say you're in this to like save this woman and you don't care about the find, or you don't care about the Ark itself. But do you? Like go ahead and blow it up. And then Indy makes ultimately the choice not to save Marion and get away, (laughs) but to like leave the arc intact. So, you know, and we don't exactly know why we want to believe it's for historical preservation.
4: He wants to know what's in it. Is it? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I was thinking about
0: character arc Mm -hmm. this time when watching it and sort of like what is Indy's kind of fatal flaw? And I think it is this, you know, as Belloc says, you know, I'm your dark shadow, whatever. Like he does have the same, like, I want to, like we're talking about, I want to see what's in it. I want to open the arc. He has that big moment where he's challenged, we're right? Like we're talking about where he doesn't blow it up. like he. And it's interesting because it, does he change? Like, does he overcome that? Because there are moments where, you know, like something I completely forgot was when he finds Marion, who he thinks has died, right? Because we... The movie basically tells us she died. And then it's like, I better duck into this tent. Oh, hey, you're alive. Oh, this is so great. I'm so happy. Yeah. But if I save you, they're going to come looking for me. (laughs) So I'm going to leave you with the Nazis.
4: Uh, You'll be fine. Yeah. I'm going to gag you again. Right. Uh,
0: And so I feel like that's, you know, a dark choice, right? Where he like, he knows he's happy that she's alive, but it's still like, but I can't endanger the mission, kind of. Yeah. And so it's interesting that then at that kind of crisisy y moment where it's like, nothing is stopping you. Like, I'm moving everyone out of the way. Like, you can blow it up. You can end it right here. Indy still can't do it. And it's kind of just, I guess, fortuitous that they decide, well, we should keep them around to watch also. We'll put them on this platform so they can have a good view. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. So it is this weird kind of like almost tragic, fatal flaw arc that then just is ultimately okay, because the bad guys let him live. And then I guess in the final moments, it's like, well, I'll close my eyes. And that's the difference
4: between... We got to talk about the ending of this movie (laughs) (laughs) in a a minute.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, it's not to say these characters like Indiana Jones or James Bond don't have arcs throughout their individual stories, but they're definitely designed as this larger thing where they are... It is more of a serial nature. it is more right. you can just watch their individual adventure of the week, and that's that's what it's going to be. so Lucas wanted to make something based on on the old serials, like we talked about And Spielberg wanted to make a bond movie or he wanted right, to make right, some other right. like globe trotting adventure, and neither of those is the kind of story where you expect and then by the end, the character is changed, and if you make a sequel, then that's going to be this new character like Terminator 2 or Aliens, where it's like the character right. is now a very different person than they were in the first movie. Now we can see. That's why most people don't even realize that Temple of Doom is a prequel because it doesn't right. make any difference. It's yeah. just I like. It was very old when I. <laughs> <right. that. laughs> but again, that's by design. It's not a good or a bad thing. It's just that is what the design right. of these movies is.
2: I don't have any particular feelings for once in my whole life about whether or not <laughs> Indiana Jones has an arc.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> you know, ultimately it kind of doesn't matter because there's enough thematic conversation, it just a little bit, but there's enough that makes it feel like it's about something, even if like the theme doesn't ultimately really resolve itself. I think the ending of this has a lot to do with the very ending with the warehouse and the crate.
3: Right, right. Mm-hmm. Uh
2: the Citizen Kane ending. Um, <laughs> that has a lot to do with how we read like. You know, Indiana Jones doesn't know that that's what happened to the arc, but we do. And so that puts a thematic button on the story Mm -hmm. apart from Indiana Jones's arc. So it almost becomes larger than he is. The story almost becomes larger than he is. And it starts to become about like America's position in the world and like our relationship to, you know, history and archaeology and Theft. It becomes something else. And meanwhile, there's enough sprinkled in, you know, between people like Marcus Brody and Indiana Jones and Belloc and Marion, where it feels like they're having a conversation about why are we all here? Mm -hmm. And ultimately, it doesn't resolve itself. But that's kind of okay as long as that stuff is in there a little bit. At least that's, I think, what most people would probably come away from this movie would be like, I'm going to think about those crates for a while. Right. And, like, maybe they don't know what they mean, but we're going to think about it. <laughs> <them.
4: laughs> the movie seems to be saying something mm, here. Yeah. What?
3: well i'm guessing what happened is because there was more between indy and marion in the original script and everything that he did have more of an arc but then in the final product it was lost can we talk about marion
4: for a minute yes
3: because yeah i think interesting rewatching
4: this movie because it was bringing back memories of kid brain watching this movie and even kid brain was having questions about like is this a real person like does like is is this like is this woman like being written as a human person or is she like this other movie thing that is like doing things randomly that I don't understand my kid brain didn't understand why she was doing half the things she was doing and I followed her motivations and her character as a character way more as an adult but I think there still are like I have this uncomfortable feeling with her character where she's presented to me at first as incredibly spunky, you know, I'm going to do what I want and I'm going to punch you and, you know, I'm drinking, like, two bottles of liquor at once and I'm totally (laughs) fine. But then also later on, it's the movie is basically concerned with getting her into, like, a variety of dresses and she's also enacting plans that I don't understand, like, what the plan is actually and it just seems to be to get her into a dress. So anyway, Trisha... Brian, Michael, <laughs> do you understand what Marion is doing in this movie, and like, like what her character is all about? Because I think I always have felt like ambivalent about it, and even as a kid, was like, this feels like they didn't know how to write a woman character.
2: Wow!
4: But yeah, but is that just me? I don't know.
3: I don't know. You. I mean, you called on all three of us. Why don't you call on one of us at random? That's not me or Michael. <laughs> I don't want to put it all on Trisha. I, I'm, I'm curious if that was just my kid brain.
4: That was like, there's something weird actually, about this character.
2: I do want to hear from Michael first, actually, on this, because I think he has thoughts.
0: I liked her a lot, actually. I think I didn't remember her a ton. I think my kid brain was like, why are other people in this movie? Why is it not just Indiana Jones sure. doing action? versus
2: the Nazis only.
0: Yeah, and also was very confused about like dresses and like, wait, now she likes past Vincent Kinsell, but now she (laughs) doesn't. And like, but I don't know. I think this time, I think a lot of her is undercut by that feeling of, and now we need them to get over here. So we're going to slap a bow on the end of this. And she's going to yell at Indy like, I'm your partner. We're going. yeah (laughs) Even though that maybe didn't make a whole lot of sense, but everything up to that moment, I think was interesting. And, I feel like she actually adds a lot of dimension to the movie and yes. like an interesting like counter texture to Indy who this time I wasn't as enamored with like I saw him as a kind of more lovable jerk character and so it was nice to have her as a foil she's there in the action scene she's like participating and like you know kind of I a mean, kind of like so. I mean she's like the
4: pot and then she like Runs yeah, into I think,
0: I mean, that whole sequence in Cairo is, like, a whole, like, tone, <laughs> like, are we, is it Three just now? Like, there's right. a lot of, like... <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it's cool that, like, for that sequence, she is part of it and, like, gets mm. to, like, have agency and and is, I don't know. I find her to be pretty interesting. And by the end of this movie, I was, like, sad remembering that she's not in Temple of Doom or mm. Last Like, I'm... It's going to be sad watching those movies without her in it. Sure. Because I think she is kind of a fun person that is able to go toe-to-toe with Indy in a way that is fun and, and works for the movie.
3: You know what you'll love then? I, <laughs> I do. <laughs>
0: Uh, I am curious if I'm going to appreciate that more in Crystal Uh, Skull because like watching it being like, oh, I forgot that character was Indiana Jones in these movies, you know, the first time I was like, oh, I'm not invested in this relationship, but now I am. So we'll see.
2: So... 30s and 40s serials tended to have two female archetypes in them. You have like sort of a femme fatale, very feminine, very sexy, smoldering woman. And then you also have like a, like a His Girl Friday, like a tomboy kind of scrappy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Marion Ravenwood's character was criticized for being like the epitome of like a scrappy tomboy a little mm-hmm. bit when this movie came out which she definitely is. We're introduced to her in a very not unfeminine setting where Mm -hmm. here she is, she's going to drink this big guy at the bar that she owns under the table, right? And she's wearing slacks. She's got her hair up. You know, she's... She's
4: basically Humphrey Bogart in Casablanca when he walks in. She's like, all the bars (laughs) and all the yeah.
2: No, exactly. Although, yeah, of course... Indy's character is like very inspired by two different Humphrey Bogart characters. Yeah. Um,
3: Especially Temple of Doom. He's wearing like the full Casablanca. It, exactly. Yeah. Oh,
2: totally. But yeah, so she is, you know, kind of a scrappy tomboy. They do go out of their way to try to make this romance. Like I said, there was more in it and they it feels kind of like the romantic part. Feels a little bit slapped onto this movie because ultimately mm-hmm. Indy literally never chooses her ever.
4: (laughs) Kiss me here and here.
2: (laughs) And by that, I just mean like the movie is concerned with constantly putting Marion in peril and yet never rescuing her. So she's a damsel in distress, but it never cares enough to like rescue her in that sense. But that's okay because Karen Allen's performance to me makes the character completely work and completely believable. So Karen Allen did a lot of work On the character, as a really good actor does. Like, whether or not it's on the page, you really need to dive in and see, like, you know, how did I, my character, get to this point in my life, right? Like, what's all the stuff that's led me here? And so, there's this marvelous backstory with Marion where her father was a professor that was a colleague of Indiana Jones's, and he was also an archaeologist, and he, you know, as she said, like, hauled her all over the world while he was looking for his stupid artifacts and she didn't want to have anything to do with it. And so she fell into this romance with Indiana Jones when she was too young. But nonetheless, (laughs) that, you know, informed who she became and made her this very self-reliant person who doesn't need anybody to take care of her, who owns her own business in Nepal. (laughs) You're right. (laughs) Unexplained. Totally fine. But... She has this very forthright and fearless way about carrying herself, despite the fact that she is constantly in peril. And so, like, I love the scene in Cairo where she grabs that pan, you know, and hits the guy over the head with it and whatever. And it's a much more entertaining dynamic it makes the movie funnier it makes Mm -hmm. their relationship more delightful where they're in the well of souls you know and she's yelling at him to fix it like she is scared but it's not even like she's just screaming like she's gonna break a nail it's she's mad basically that indiana jones has gotten them into this situation and that it's his Mm -hmm. job to fix it as far as she's concerned so i think that that is overall a much more believable and engaging character. And I think, you know, far and away, she is the best of the Jones girls.
3: That's my feeling too. I talked about seeing Modern Times, I think last week. And this reminded me of Paulette Goddard's character from The Great Dictator, where she is also running around with a frying pan Trying to bonk Nazis on the head during this sort of more farcical scene than the rest of the movie has, yeah. so I got kind of a sense of there were you know there's a lot of homages in here that don't feel like again on the nose homages, but feel like if you know the reference, it's kind of a nice little oh is that a- I think it is that's cool.
2: Concerning the scene with her and Belloc, yeah, there was supposed to be more of this love triangle where it's like she really was attracted to him. I think that that's never a problem I've had with the movie, only because. I think of Marion as being, yeah, a real character with agency. And when you see her goal, like Indiana Jones came there, he did not save her. So, you know, the responsibility now to save herself is her own. And so allying herself with somebody like Belloc, who seems to be civilized and like he sees her However he sees her, he at least acknowledges that she's there, right? And if he's attracted to her, more is the better in terms of her survival.
3: Right. So, great. You
2: want me to wear a dress? Not a problem. Like, you want to drink whatever this is? Great and fine. Like, just kind of playing the angles, I feel like, makes a ton of sense in the situation because, you know, what are your other options? And she does try to get away, right? Like, he unties her and she immediately runs for the – she gets untied – She immediately runs for the door of the tent, and then Belloc walks in and is like, "Well, the desert's three weeks in every direction." So it's like, "Well, I need to make another plan." I guess. Mm -hmm.
0: Is it Tote Tot Ronald Lacey? I think that's when he comes in, and then he has that like nunchuck (laughs) hanger, hanger. amazing
4: (laughs) gag. Yeah, yeah,
0: and he is amazing also in this movie.
2: Oh, so good.
0: The most disturbing, yeah, henchman person
2: (laughs) with the best death.
0: Yeah, right. His face melting is definitely the best (laughs) of all the face melts. Okay, well that
4: ending, how I mean, what did that ending do to your speaking of kid brains, like what did that ending do to your kid brain, everybody?
0: I don't know that my brain, like, I, like, I think it just kind of came in one ear and out the other, sort of a thing. Like, I don't know that I even had the idea that I could make sense of it other than, like, okay, cool. It kills who looks at it. They didn't. The end. Like, that's all fine.
4: It was an interesting experience of this is my kid brain wants to, like, feels unsettled when it feels like I should understand something that I don't understand. Like, if I understood enough of the movie up to that point and then this completely bonkers out of left field thing happens suddenly and like there are rules and Indy knows the rules and everybody like has vanished now and that, but it's over. Like the arc is in a crate and that means something, but Mm then now it's over. (laughs) Like I think that was what was so disconcerting was like we did all this to get to here and then like something happened that melted everybody's faces and then it was over and it's in a box. What do you guys feel that ending is accomplishing from adult brains, and like, what do you feel like Spielberg is trying to do with the crate reveal? <laughs> do we know?
2: Well, I feel like I got a lot from watching this movie after having grown up in like Sunday school and <laughs> a lot of very strict conservative Christian upbringing because there's a lot about the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament, and a lot of it is messed up. And upsetting.
4: <laughs> is it basically a nuke? Is it, it feels no, like it's like it a kind of
2: is. So you're not allowed to touch it at all ever. The like high priests are only allowed to go in to where it is once a year or something, and they have to like do a whole ceremony before they even like go in to where it's being held, which is like in a tent. But it's like super super sacred. There's a, a thing in the Old Testament that happens where. At one point, people are carrying it through the streets because it's a celebration and they're returning it. It was stolen. They're like returning it to the temple or something. And somebody, they're like dancing. It's a huge celebration, like a parade, essentially. Somebody that's holding the Ark of the Covenant poles on his shoulders, like is going to fall over. And so the Ark is going to fall off and hit the ground. And somebody in the parade Reaches out and steadies it and touches it to steady it, and God strikes him dead. (laughs) It's right there because he's trying to help. Yeah, because (laughs) no touching. All of this to say you don't have to know any of this, but if you come from Christian school, or perhaps if you're Jewish as well, I have no idea how much Old Testament, I assume a lot if you're raised like very, very strictly religious in either of those traditions. I would assume you would know a lot about like how powerful the arc is. Like, do not look at it. Do not even think about it. Don't touch it like ever because it's yeah, basically a nuke. So I think for me, (laughs) I never had any sort of trip up with it, but you are right that the movie doesn't do much to explain any of that. And in fact, this could potentially lead us into conversation about plot holes and illogics because there are many In this movie, and whether you bump on them or not, I think is maybe a personal preference or is maybe the point question mark.
4: Yeah, I don't bump on many of them. I think it's kind of almost part of the genre in a way. Right. Uh Uh-huh. And I think to me, the ending, the meaning that I always got was like too much
0: greed is punished, and you know, Nazis were bad because they were trying really hard to find all these weapons, like so some things. Do belong in a museum? Question. Mark. I don't know.
4: <laughs> don't put that in museum. That's a bad idea too. But
0: yeah. yeah, that like some sort of like the bad guys couldn't help themselves. Right. But like open. they opened
4: Pandora's box. They shouldn't have done it. Yeah.
0: And then the last shot is sort of feels really like X Filesy to me. Of just yeah. like. And this is just one of the many crazy things in this world (laughs) of magic and, like, curses, which I feel like, and this is potentially setting up how I'm going to go into Crystal Skull, does set up certain precedents about the world that Indiana Jones operates in that, you know, is in the text, is all I'm saying.
4: Okay, because that was how I was reading it this time, where it's like adult brain was seeing the shot and seeing how it's like all these boxes are identical and, oh, my God, look how vast the warehouse is this is suggesting to me that there are like millions of dangerous magical artifacts that mm-hmm. the government is hiding from us which is kind of a fun almost like sci-fi universe idea
2: well i think it's interesting because the you know indiana jones's faith or lack thereof in the supernatural is a big theme of all three of these films that's true and you know marcus brody and various other people in the series represent people who have a lot of faith and are like, you know, you're meddling with forces you cannot possibly comprehend, right? Do not touch this sacred artifact because of supernatural reasons. And Indiana Jones, again, we talk about like, we want to believe that his interest is pure and scientific. And that actually puts him somewhere between the profiteers, like the Nazis or mercenaries, and people of actual faith people like Marcus Brody, right? And so I think that's what makes that thematic conversation feel rich, where he sometimes makes choices that put him more on the side of the profiteers. And sometimes he has to make choices where he's confronted with something so powerful that he ends up believing potentially. I think that that's why the choice, you know, for Indy to tell Marion to close their eyes and to not look at the Ark does feel... Like a character arc, even if it isn't quite, because we see him, he probably would have made that choice at the beginning of this movie, but by the end of it, for reasons I can't tell. Now he can (laughs)
0: close his eyes, right? He he actually has like very
2: rarely even been around or near the arc, so I don't know why his opinion of it changed, but he just decided that he's going to close his eyes, and now he's a believer, right? And at the end, when he's trying to convince the governmental bureaucrats to do the right thing with the arc.
4: Which is what exactly? No
2: one knows.
4: (laughs) It's a nuke.
2: Again, (laughs) he's trying to tell them not to put it in a warehouse full of other crates full of supernatural artifacts (laughs) because that's the wrong thing to do. But it does feel like he's learned a lesson. Again, even if he textually hasn't, the mood of the movie carries you to a finale that feels like it has arrived at a conclusion thematically. And that in itself is a remarkable feat.
3: (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. There's also a sense of like, you are maybe supposed to feel, granted, we don't really know what he wants to do with it, like you were just saying, but you get the sense he wants to study it or put it in a museum or just do something other than like lock it from human existence for the rest of time. And you would think that even regardless of character arc if he were able to achieve that goal that he would feel justified basically like he came through to the other side and he and he was victorious but then because the movie wants to do this fun frustrating thematic thing then he doesn't get that so it's almost like it actually works that he doesn't that it sort of feels like this movie just lacks a final punch you don't get this big right. action scene at the end you get indeed tied up while he, you know, closes his eyes and the bad guys let themselves, yeah, Visual Ghostbusters happens. And then the finale finale after the finale is, and now the thing that you rescued is getting put in, in a warehouse forever. And that's, again, it's sort of frustrating, but it's doing the thing that it's trying to, to do. It's trying to put you as the audience in a certain state of mind.
4: Really quick, I just had a vision of, like, if this movie took place in present day and it was a Marvel movie, there'd be a whole sequence of, like, some amazing high-tech, like, Tony Stark room where, like, a robot goes in to open the arc so they can, like, study it without harming humans.
2: But here's the main question that I want to have answered before we even think about wrapping up, which is, what is your favorite action sequence in this movie and why? Why?
0: I also wanted to be like, okay, we can't stop before we at least talk about the action Hell sequences. Hell no. So, yeah. I mean, I have my answer. I don't know if people want to go first. I no, we I, want
2: you to go first. You go yeah, first. Go okay. for it.
0: I think one of the best action sequences of all time is Indiana Jones chasing down the caravan with the truck, the ark, and the back of it and, like, mm-hmm. single-handedly disposing of, like, a <laughs> platoon or whatever <laughs> of, like, people. It's just shot so well. It's so fun. It's so... Believable. I feel like this is an instance where like you can see the stunts happening and it's like it's a small scale, but like you feel the danger in that small scale. Apparently, Michael D. Moore, who is the second unit director,
2: directed that whole sequence. Directed Mm. basically
0: that whole sequence. Like, obviously, it was kind of storyboarded before, but he like added in shots because he knew, well, you're gonna need this, you're gonna need that. And so I think it's also just interesting that in a Spielberg film, one of the best action sequences wasn't directed by him, or at least not entirely by him. So wanted to shout that out. But yeah, I feel like that sequence like cures any ills or bumps I would have had in the movie up to that point because oh, it's yeah. just so great. Like that's just what I want from like your action hero is seeing all of that happen and it's in real time and it's believable. It's, so, it's tactile, it's fun, it's dangerous. It's, yeah, watching it, I was
3: floored by it this time same answer same reasons <laughs> <laughs> just i had the exact same thought i was just like that's a stuntman under, under a truck car. like crawling yeah, through it, the thing it was yeah.
4: getting mad max fury road vibes like this is mm-hmm. this is oh, yeah. like at that level mm-hmm. but without <laughs> the without visual the effects modern visual effects. Make it complicated yeah. yeah
2: one thing that is amazing about that sequence is the narrative arc to it or like the cycle part of it where once Indiana Jones gets into the truck where he's driving the truck that has the arc in the back and all those soldiers are back there, there are like two tenacious guards of the arc. Right. The first one that comes in and shoots him right? And then there's the second guy. So there's the first guy that gets into the cab, shoots him in the arm, and then Indiana eventually like throws him out of the side of the cab of the truck at that point. But then there's the last final guy that's like sort of the big bad of that sequence Mm -hmm. who comes up over the top of the truck, right? Mm -hmm. And comes up over the front and in through the windshield, which is already awesome. But the amazing like bow of that sequence where they have this whole fight in the cab of the truck and this guy is like punching Indy in his arm where he was shot. What a mm-hmm. jerk. Throws Indy out of the front through the windshield and then he goes over the hood of the truck which is already awesome and Harrison Ford did that. Like, mm. I need to talk about Harrison Ford for a while. Um, <laughs> I can save it for some of the next two We have lots of Harrison. I, yeah. know, I yeah. know, I know, I know, I yeah. know. But he did so many like so many of his stunts, and they make these movies what they are. They really do. But yeah, did the thing where he's like hanging onto the wheel and then he goes underneath the truck. But then he comes back, like pulls himself back up into the truck, into the back of the truck, mm. comes out to the side, goes around, comes back into the cab and does the exact same thing to this guy. It's so good. And everything about it is while like they're moving, you know, moving mm-hmm. at a very fast pace through the landscape. There's all of these environmental hazards in the way. There's the car in front with Belloc in it. And yeah, the Nazis, right. it's, uh, it's just so satisfying. <laughs> <laughs> it's so well shot. And it. I don't know exactly how long it is. It's probably 10 minutes at the very least, I would think. Because like you're saying, it's happening in real time.
3: it feels like it is the third act of the movie, almost. Like it feels like it's just, yeah.
2: And I love that, yeah, it was that sequence they had basically designed. And as you mentioned, Alex, they were like, so he goes to get the truck and between the like amazing fight at the airplane, like that's like Mm -hmm, on mm -hmm. the strip that's gonna take off, it never takes off, so they put the arc of the truck instead. Right. It's literally like a three-line like Where's the Ark? They put it on that truck. Okay, I'm going to go get it. And then we're off to the next <laughs> sequence. It's right. just like, no need to do anything right. else.
3: Well, that reminds me of two sort of, one is a observation and the other is a rule of indie movies. The observation is like every action scene has a strong man in it who uh-huh. like eventually uh-huh. shows it. Just like, yeah. well, you took out all these guys, but you haven't met Brutus yet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then he yeah, like exactly. shows up like, why don't you just send him out first? But then there's the rule that I call the indie smile rule. Which, if you haven't watched all the movies yet, then you can, you know, f- play along. Which is anytime, I mean, this might be like the Harrison Ford smile rule. Because, like, mm-hmm. it might be a Han Solo thing, too. Anytime Indiana Jones smiles satisfied, you know that, like, two seconds later, the worst thing is going to happen. He's mm-hmm. going to turn around and realize, like, oh, crap, there's, like, an army of people behind me. It's just, it's always fun to be like, okay, he smiled, and there we go, we're in trouble. I'm glad you
0: named also that the awesome action scene that precedes it. Right. Which was directed by Spielberg, apparently making it up shot by shot. Right. As there was no going. storyboards
4: for that. They were just Ridiculous. like, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say that an action scene that I've always loved from this movie and loved revisiting, thinking about how they actually made it this time is the burning down bar scene, uh, yeah, just because it's like, it's, great. It, it's like a Disneyland ride. You know, you got the, like the streaks of alcohol where the fire is going to come and they move their hand just in time. And it's a really fun, it feels like you're on a Disney ride in that. It's, it reminds me of like, you know, we talked about in Pirates of the Caribbean. There's something about that kind of an action sequence that has a special kind of charm where There, you know, the donkey is moving just perfectly in the barn so that Jack Sparrow can go up to the beam or whatever. Mm -hmm. It feels like the bar scene has that same kind of charm with a lot of kind of accidents happening in tune with the characters. And I just I love those kind of those feel like they can only happen in this kind of a movie. You can't have that in a James Bond movie.
0: Awesome. Why don't we go around and say what lessons we're going to take from Indiana Jones? Brian, do you want to start us off?
3: Raiders of the Lost Ark, I should clarify. Yeah, I
2: was going to say. Yeah,
3: we've talked about it a lot already, but Spielberg said something that maybe recontextualized how I was thinking about a lesson I had already written down, which was he said it's one of his only characters other than maybe E.T. or the shark from Jaws, where you can just show a silhouette of the character and know who they are. And the lesson I'd already written down was basically that, but textually. So he's talking visually, literally a silhouette, Mm -hmm. but also all you have to do, and some of this is costume, but you just say to someone, archaeologist hates snakes. Like already they know who this is, but you can name another 10 traits, right? And I don't know, I don't know that there are that many big like franchise stars you could really do that with. Like, could you do that with Luke Skywalker without saying the word lightsaber? You know, like there are a lot of characters where it's just hard to. Like whiny, whiny about Tashi Station. Farm boy, yeah. yeah, loves power converters. But yeah, right. so I just thought it's it's really cool. Not only does the design of this character allow for so many traits, some of which are like, look, he doesn't, he has no problem with spiders, but oh, Crappy hates snakes. Or like he's a teacher, but oh, he's also an like these cool juxtapositions of his who his character is, but also these other things like you know he uses a whip or just whatever, like things that just make him stand apart from. Uh, any other action movie character who is running around with the same pistol that everyone else uses or or just all that kind of stuff. And then also, all of that is revealed or basically all that's revealed in the first 10 pages of the script, first 10 minutes of the movie. You see all of those things, the opening sequence and then the... (laughs) back-to-school sequence, basically. Like, within those two scenes, you get so, 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 so much about who this character is that will then become what defines this character throughout the entire franchise.
4: I'm just going to piggyback off of Brian's lesson because that was exactly my lesson, which is I was Mm. astounded watching at this time those first two main sequences, both, you know, the classic opening, but then also the scene at the school. It's just so efficient. It was amazing. It was like, you just set up an entire franchise, like an entire... Like, you know, it's going to become this huge thing. You did it all in this really just tight, efficient storytelling. Set up all the dichotomies of the character, all the signature moves and gadgets and things, the genre requirements of the temple. And it it was amazing. Like, if you want the first 10 minutes of a movie to tell you what kind of a movie you're going to watch, like, study this movie, because they did Mm -hmm. it. And, And when you combine that opening temple scene With the school scene, it really is everything.
2: Yeah. One thing I really love about the Indiana Jones character is all of the complexity where he has, you know, he's an archaeologist and a professor that we've talked about. But also, he's a hero, but he's definitely an everyman kind of a hero. Where, because... And it's not just because we see him in the classroom, but it's also the way that the character acts and is written throughout that opening sequence... Where he's very undignified and like is gotten the better of mm-hmm. quite a lot, as I think one of you pointed out earlier. Like Indiana Jones does not outsmart everybody all the time; he gets bested quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And one of the you know most wonderful things about the character too is that he is that he's not a strategist he's always kind of thinking on the fly and on the run and that makes him sloppy and it leads to mistakes. And again, it kind of makes him a little bit undignified and comical at different points. And so, you know, it's funny in that opening sequence that the first time we meet him, he gets betrayed by one of his guys and, you know, he turns around, he's got the whip and like gets the better of that guy. And then, Less than 10 minutes later, Alfred Molina in a great Alfred performance. Molina! <laughs> I love him. It's so good, but like 10 minutes later, he betrays Indian and he doesn't see it coming at all, or, or rather maybe he does, but there's nothing he can do about it. Right. Right? He just gets bested, and then bested again by Belloc, and then the scene where he's running over the ridge, and like all the natives are chasing him in a line, right? It's very undignified. One of the things that make the character so endearing is. Yes, just the weariness of mm-hmm. him and how he's like willing to take shortcuts. He doesn't have like a code that he has to follow where he has to do things the hardest way possible. Again, he's kind of an everyman. So you know, in this movie, the famous scene where like they have the swordsman that's there and he just goes to shoot him and kills him right there because it's just easier to do. Do you know
4: the story behind why they cut the sword mm-hmm. fight and he just dysentery. shoots him? Yeah, because the entire cast of had dysentery. <laughs>
2: Yeah, but it's perfectly in step with the character, yeah. right? Where we see that again in the opening sequence, where Belloc does this ceremonial thing with the idol, and he's all the natives like quickly bow to it. And he's like, "Well, I'm going to run away now. You guys are all bowing, perfect, right? He's not observing the sacred whatever that <laughs> everyone else is observing. He's just here to get out of here. And so I think that that's so much of what makes the character so lovable and that opening sequence incredibly brilliant is it it's this mixture of the like coolness of the character and how together and yeah heroic he is and then how undignified at the same time it's great
0: yeah i mean it's definitely watching it this time there were shots like you were talking about and a Indy running away with, you know, all the natives behind him. So that reminded me of Pirates of the Caribbean. But also, like, you're talking about the sort of, like, you know, Jack Sparrow is sort of this... Hapless. ...fumbling, like, he (laughs) kind of has a plan, but it always goes wrong, but he always figures it out somehow. And I feel like that is kind of a fun action hero to have in an adventure movie. Like, I think that's where some of the adventure comes from, is that improvisational, dirty nature. Yes. Kind of going off of that... My lesson is just a sentence that I heard Lawrence Kasdan say in an interview that I was watching with John August and Craig Mazin interviewed him. It's this really fascinating interview. It was like right after The Force Awakens. And so he was talking about Star Wars. He's talking about Indiana Jones and Harrison Ford and like all this stuff. It's just super delightful. But they were kind of talking about the problems that movies today can run into and he basically just said, you know, they have lots of explosions that you have no emotional connection to. It's kind of a duh, but like hearing him say that after just watching Indiana Jones, all of the action scenes feel grounded because they are all designed around the characters. Like it's all... You know, you know, when that car blows up, that means that Marion's dead, right? Like you, you're keeping track of where everyone is and what kind of jeopardy they're in at each time. I feel like it's part of what makes those action scenes so fun. And then thinking about my favorite, that crazy car chase, it's kind of a combination of, that, but also just clear objectives like and watching you know Indiana Jones do that thing where he doesn't know what his plan is, right? I think he even says at that point, like he's making up specifically says as I'm right. Mm -hmm. And so you're seeing him charge off on a horse after a caravan of Nazis, like how is he gonna figure this out? But that's where so much of the fun is like that's the obstacle. It's like he's gotta figure out some way to do it. And so I think just the scope and the scale of each action scene and how they're all designed around very clear, specific objectives that put people that we care about in clear jeopardy is just like the recipe that you want. And I, I just love, I love that this movie does that so expertly.
2: Yeah. Well, actually that's a little bit similar to my lesson or kind of related, which one of the things I love about this movie is that it actually simplifies as it goes along where The plot mechanics and in the Pirates of the Caribbean episode, we talked about, you know, in an action adventure movie, you're looking for magical objects and you usually need a couple of them to make the machine of the supernatural thing work, right? Or to solve the treasure hunt puzzle or whatever it is that you're trying to do. So. In here, you have the, you know, the headpiece of the staff of Ra, and then you have to find the map room, and then that leads you to the Ark, potentially. The Ark's in the Well of Souls. We don't exactly know where that is. So there's a couple of different, like, puzzly things and mechanical things going on. Meanwhile, you have different character things going on. But as this movie continues, it funnels all of that until we get to the midpoint where they get the Ark, or the Ark is found. And so once the Ark is found at the midpoint, there is only one objective from there on out. The Nazis have the Ark. Indy's trying to get it back. And the whole second half of the movie is Indy's trying to get the Ark back. And it's really great how simple that is to follow as you're talking about Michael, where everything from that point on, which is like that fight around the plane because they're going to put the Ark on the plane, but then they don't because the plane blows up. And then they put the Ark on the trucks and the convoy and then we get it back from there. And then they, it's on the ship and then the Nazis come and then they're on the submarine and then they're in the desert again <laughs> for the Ark opening ceremony. Like <laughs> all, But all of that, the objective doesn't change. It's just this very linear... Indy is here to follow the arc until the very end. And so it's really, really clear and it makes those like simple mechanics. I feel like a lot of even good examples, parts of the Caribbean is one where the mechanics actually get more complex a little bit as it goes along. And so the finale and the Star Wars movies do this, right? The finale is always some like, we're in three different locations mm-hmm. and like different right. things have to, yeah, everything's you know. intercut and different things have to happen all over the place. at Exactly the right moment for the thing to go right for the heroes. Raiders doesn't do any of that. And actually there was a lot more of that stuff in the draft of the script that I happened to have a copy of. I was talking off mic. I have a copy. I have a blue draft of the script which is from May 1979, which is not the shooting draft. It predates the shooting draft and it has all the stuff in it, you know, that was famously put into Temple of Doom later. So there was like a mine cart chase and there's like a rolling gong that Indy uses to shield himself from bullets and There's a lot more, and a lot of it was in the third act. And that's primarily where they were cutting stuff to simplify and streamline the third act. And it's a super smart way to approach this. I feel like it goes against sometimes conventional wisdom of like, make the climax bigger. But in this case, because the climax is already very cinematic, it doesn't actually need to be bigger in the sense it doesn't need to be more complicated.
4: Melt more faces.
2: Yes, I mean, that's the
4: simple
2: solution. Yeah, (laughs) extra yeah, Yeah. face melting, yeah, (laughs) times 10. But tie your hero to a stake, as Brian pointed out. That's a really bold choice for the climax of this. Mm I think that's part
4: of the like unconscious, like, issue my kid brain was having was like the signals, like, the return of the Jedi signals are not like happening. Like, what's what's going on here? This is not an ending, so yeah, it's it's Mm -hmm. a really Bold choice, actually, to make Indy just like a bystander, essentially, for the climax of the film. Yeah. Yeah. Well,
0: and it's interesting, this kind of can tie into my, what am I watching? Which is like, it creates the situation where maybe the third act, the final part of the movie, isn't the most exciting or biggest and all these things that we're talking about. But because you're not saving all meaning for the end, it means the entire journey has been fun and engaging and stuff. And that kind of is how I felt. So I watched Black Widow. We haven't talked about Black Widow. So I I saw Black Widow in the theater. I really enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun. I feel like it's one of the better, like, you know, standalone Marvel movies. And a lot of things that I liked about it were like the more character moments and kind of getting some backstory, getting, you know, it's a weird backstory, but getting to know Natasha a little bit better. I feel like the dynamic between, Her and Florence Pugh's character is great. Like, Florence Pugh just, like, is cheat codes. I think we all can agree on that at this point. But it definitely suffered from that third-act action movie problem that we've talked about countless times, where, like, because the finale has to be so big and so epic, it both jumps in scale in a way that loses me, and, you know, you know kind of what has to happen. It was one of those things, like we talked about, where... By When the third act happened, I leaned back in my seat a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I wish that there wasn't so much pressure on finales to be this big explosive. There's got to be a sky machine base that falls (laughs) and explodes everywhere. And it's like, there's so much pressure on it that it's almost this like mode shift where so much of it, the movie before that was like, These two sisters on the run and like trying to figure out, like, did they have a family or did they not have a family? And then the third act is sort of like explosions and big and conspiracies and it loses like all of,
2: yeah, a lot of the heart anyway. Yeah, Yeah,
0: the personal stakes that were there. I still liked it. I still really enjoyed it. But talking about indie and talking about, like, you were just saying, Trisha, like, all those things just made me appreciate, like, yeah, like maybe the rest of the movie, like, don't save it all for the end just to make it bigger. Because, like, maybe we don't want big, long endings anyway. Like, Mm -hmm. maybe short, quick endings are fine if the rest of the journey has been the adventure.
4: Or, like, make it a really personal ending. Because I was thinking, as you were talking about, like, Mission Impossible 3, where I feel like the most intense Mm. part of that movie is, like, a quiet scene with Philip Seymour Hoffman and Ethan Hunt, and, like, he's confronted with, like, his wife is going to be shot if he doesn't do something in the next like three seconds, you know, like that. I don't
2: know if quiet is the word I would use for
4: that. Yeah. maybe not quiet, but (laughs) small scale, Like they're not on, they're not on an airship that is exploding. Like, yeah, they're in a room with like a chair. So I think, I think that I am more engaged and my heart is pumping and like, I need to know what happens next in that scene in a way that I don't feel any of those things when like the hero is definitely going to survive and now they're going to fall, you know, five miles for a while <laughs> yep <laughs> we only
0: like it when Tom Hanks not Tom Hanks Tom, Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible. F-
3: Jesus I can't yeah. no I just but want to see Tom Hanks as the new Ethan Hunt yeah. <laughs> Tom Hanks as the new
0: Ethan Hunt we can watch him in Fallout listen nothing in Fallout overstays two. its welcome
4: even if you don't like a certain sequence it doesn't stick around for like 20 minutes so true I love Mission Impossible Fallout so much and I want to talk about it
2: <laughs> let's talk about it soon
0: Well, what have you been watching, Alex?
4: I watched a very different movie from either of those. I watched Pig. Oh, no. Wow. (laughs) The new film with Nicolas Cage. (laughs) It's another great example of Nicolas Cage just sinking all the way into really fascinating art house kind of roles and and really doing it. Like, he, I think he's being lauded for this one in particular because you can't really picture anybody else but Nicolas Cage being this character and just kind of embodying this, like, Weary, grizzled, just like grieving person. Like you feel like he's just totally embodying this character on like a cellular level in a way that I think most actors. I don't know. You, you feel like there is still a little bit of a distance between them, but Nick Cage just like embodies this energy. I can't say that like I loved the movie. I, I feel like it was kind of uneven overall. I couldn't really place the tone half the time. Like is this like a heightened reality or is this just like supposed to be a very grounded reality? And in, in that case, this dialogue is really bad. If it's like a heightened reality, maybe this is like intentional. But I can't deny that it you know it was a great performance by Nicolas Cage and it definitely left me in like a mood. It's a very sad movie. It's about grief. But the pig is also great. The pig, before it gets kidnapped. If, if you don't know the plot of this movie, Nicolas Cage <laughs> is living out in the forest with his truffle hunting pig, which gets stolen. And the pig is, like, one of the best, like, pig actors I've ever seen. Like, it's the most adorable <laughs> truffle hunting pig. And I've realized, like, in this movie, like, I cared so much more when that pig got kidnapped than when most children get kidnapped in movies. Like, when animals get, like, killed or kidnapped, it, like, hits me so much harder in cinema, at least. So, wow, Alex. That's just, I don't know what that says about me, but. Taken right, four, man. Liam
3: Neeson. <laughs> like, I did
4: like I did not like Liam Neeson's daughter in Taken at all. I did not care about her, but I cared about this pig a lot. <laughs> wow.
0: Because well, animals are, like, hyper-innocent. Like, they don't get to make choices. But- right.
4: And it's like, the pig is, like, comforting him at different parts. It's just so, yeah. So, there are parts of this movie I loved a lot. Overall, didn't quite work for me. Pig is the movie. <laughs> okay. Raiders also has a pretty good... Yeah, animal, animal actor. actor. It has a great yeah. animal actor. Who, like that monkey? Like basically, is s- monkeys sinister. basically speaks speaks salute. to people. Like, it, yeah, it's an informant. Yeah.
0: <laughs> right. It does feel like it like comes and reports <laughs> right. back about locations.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> Brian, what have you been watching?
3: So my girlfriend and I, our plan on this past Sunday was to watch Raiders of the Lost Ark and then watch Temple of Doom and probably call it a night. But then between the two movies, she said, "Have you seen Romancing the Stone?" <gasps>
2: Yay! Oh, what a joy. I
3: said no, and she was like, we should watch Romancing the Stone tonight. So I was like, okay. So after Temple of Doom, we put on Romancing the Stone, which was, yeah, as you said, what a delight. A lot of fun. 1984, Robert Zemeckis movie, same year as Temple of Doom. Three years after Raiders of the Lost Ark, so you can see how much it's in conversation exactly. with, with this franchise. It was written by Diane Thomas, who only wrote this movie and its sequel, and then passed away shortly thereafter, unfortunately. But it's uh, Michael Douglas, Kathleen Turner, Danny DeVito, and Kathleen Turner is this romance novelist Joan Wilder, who of course is you know lonely and looking for her handsome man the silhouette on the cover of her novels basically and then her life basically becomes a romance novel when her sister is kidnapped and she has to go to Columbia to try to save her and then she runs into Michael Douglas who is this rugged adventurer Indiana Jones it's like the youngest Michael Douglas I've ever seen which is weird because he's like still looks like he's like not 60, young actually. but right. <laughs> but he's like dancing and I'm like, oh, it's, wow. he's it's always like, been 60. But no, it's, it's really fun movie. I think it holds up like for someone who has not seen this movie before. I didn't have to like rely on, I didn't have any like nostalgia to rely on or anything like that. It just really held up. It's just a, a really fun movie that sort of feels like in the way The Mummy is Indiana Jones, but not at all Indiana Jones. Romancing the Stone feels like Indiana Jones, but not at all Indiana Jones. It's like if you took a, a slice out of the Indiana Jones cake and turned that into a movie. That's what *Romancing the Stone* feels like. Nice.
2: Yeah, *Romancing the Stone* is a great Zemeckis-Silvestri collab. Nice. Mm-hmm. I also watched a Zemeckis and Silvestri collab. Oh, wow. I finally this is my actual. Give it, to us. I, it's one Give to, it to us. It's what lies beneath. But actually, that's not the one I want to talk about. So I finally finished my Harrison Ford marathon, where for. Those that have been following along, I decided to watch every Harrison Ford movie between 1977, A New Hope, and 2000, What Lies Beneath. I decided those were going to be my bookends because he's made movies outside of those bookends, but let's be real. No one wants to watch them. So <laughs> I've seen a lot of the ones outside of yeah. those, but I wanted to make sure I was like had a comprehensive study of those few decades in Harrison Ford's career. And I have lots of thoughts about it. Hopefully we'll get to Harrison Ford as an actor in the next movie when we talk about Temple of Doom and forward, moving forward from that. But the last four that I had on my list were What Lies Beneath, Six Days, Seven Nights, Random Hearts, and The Mosquito Coast. And The Mosquito Coast is the most interesting one in that bunch, I will say, like, I really, really liked or just found the Mosquito Coast really intriguing. It's from 1986. It's a Peter Weir movie with Harrison Ford, Helen Mirren, and River Phoenix. And they are play a family. It's a very dark, weird drama. Harrison Ford plays an eccentric inventor that decides to move his family to Central America and, like live because off the grid essentially because he hates corporate America and thinks that like everything is going to be destroyed and he has like invented an ice maker and he's going to like move to this rural village in the jungle and make ice and give it to the villagers it's I mean he he plays someone who's like clearly losing his grip on reality and so it's it's actually mostly a family drama about how he like eccentricities and and like delusions are like sort of tearing his family apart while they're like living in the jungle. It's really fascinating. I read an interview with Harrison Ford where he said it was his favorite performance that he ever did. He's really interesting and weird in it. Like he's got an interesting look and he feels like he's playing a totally different character than any of his other movies. Trust me. And you would know, (laughs) I mean, I don't know. I really recommend it if you're looking for, like, a Harrison Ford performance with some depth. Mosquito Coast, yeah. It's really interesting and great. And it's his first movie that he basically decided to do after Raiders and Temple of Doom. Mm. And then he, like, took this part. Also, so. Witness
3: was right around there, too, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah.
2: Witness is also great. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, again, you have sort of a leading man, like heroic kind of figure in Witness, even though Witness is totally, you know, like more of a thriller and everything, but, and romantic thriller. But yeah, Mosquito Coast is like, he's arguably the antagonist of the movie, even though he's also the main character. And River Phoenix is kind of like the hero, I guess you could say, or like it's about a father-son relationship. I don't know. It's really fascinating. And then that was how he met River Phoenix. And they got along so well that he was the one who suggested River Phoenix play young Indiana Jones in Last Crusade, which we'll get to. So, but yeah, meanwhile, if you want to, you can catch Mosquito Coast.
0: Awesome. Cool. Well, this has been part one and our trilogy on the Indiana Jones trilogy is what I'm going to keep calling it. So we're going to do next week will be Temple of Doom and then Last Crusade. And along with Last Crusade, we'll be releasing a patron exclusive episode on Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Because we cannot talk about it. And there are things. I'm excited I'm to talk really about I'm really excited about it. to talk I'm about it. I'm excited to revisit it. I think it'll be a very fascinating conversation. <laughs> <laughs>
2: What a polite way to say that.
0: (laughs) But yes, thank you, as always, to the patrons for supporting this show, for making it possible. Thank you to our producer, Vince Major, and our editor, Eric Schneider. I'm Michael Tucker. I've been joined today by Tricia Arand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Calleros. All of our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Send us a tweet. Say hi. Let us know how you feel about Indiana Jones. Which one's your favorite? Let's just, like, let's talk about it. There's so Mm -hmm. much. So far, I'm very much enjoying getting to revisit these classics, and I'm excited to continue the conversation in the next episode. So we will see you then. Thanks for listening.
2: Bye, everyone.
0: Bye-bye. Bye.